you in ways that maybe it has not before today. As you know, during this season of Advent, we have been preaching on the doctrine of God and specifically on His moral perfections. What we mean by that is how the living triune God is infinitely perfect in all that He is and so infinitely perfect in all that He does from all that He is. Uh, He's perfect first and foremost in His holiness and He is perfect in love, in goodness, in patience, in kindness, in justice, in wrath, in mercy, in all things God is perfect. We're trying to see him as he is in these weeks together. We've got two more weeks to go. I get to press in today on the beautiful truth that God is infinitely and perfectly faithful. He is faithful. But before I press into the character of our God, let me talk with you guys about a guy that I work with who is what we would call the antithesis or the opposite of who God has revealed himself to be for confidentiality purposes. And just in case I actually have coworkers who I'm always telling about Jesus who actually voyeur our podcast, I highly doubt that. But I will withhold his real name. I'll just call him Johnny. We'll call him Johnny Rags. And don't forget I live in, I I work, uh, my day job's in Revere. Not to stereotype. Okay, Johnny is what I call a promise maker, a serial promise maker. Have you ever met these people? Some of us have a little bit of this in us. Every time you talk with them, they cannot help but veer into making some promises of what's going to happen or what they're going to do for you before the next time that they see you. They just cannot end a conversation without making a future promise of some sort. So, for example, the week that I finally shaved my head, Johnny told me, Maddie, I'm going to get you this awesome shaving cream that my buddy uses. It's incredible. It's made for your head. Just, boom, your nugget's going to feel like a baby's bottom. Made this promise to me. When he learned that Grace and I had four children, Johnny said to me, Maddie, I got a connection at the aquarium Free tickets for you guys, Omni Theater and everything. Take grace, take the kids, you're going to love it. I promise. Like most people that I meet these days who know that we're planning a church together, I get this promise all the time, and he gave it to me as well. Clear, clear as a day, clear as a bell. This Sunday, Rosie and I are going to be at this seven-mile, eight-mile thing, church. Where is that? Highland Avenue by BJ's? I got a buddy who owns a barbershop up on Highland Ave. We'll go get you a haircut after the service. Are you feeling this? Those are about exact quotes with the accent. And on it it goes. If you meet this guy and you talk with this guy, Johnny is making promises. Now, what's the problem with this? The problem is not so much that Johnny makes promises. The problem is that Johnny does not keep promises. His promises. I am still using Grace's Raspberry Rain Skintimate shaving cream on my head. I haven't found the super shaving cream yet. Our kids have still not been to the Omni Theater at the aquarium. Uh, I still have not seen Johnny come in to gather with us for word and sacrament on the Lord's Day. 
The fact that Johnny is a promise maker, it means nothing unless he is also a promise keeper. But then we come together to the doctrine of God and who he is, and the scriptures reveal to us over and over again with this glorious left-right combination that the Lord is a promise-making God who is also infinitely perfect at the keeping of his promises. All right, Brent has already read from the New Testament in that we see the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his promises that a Messiah, a king would be born to his people. I'm going to back up with you. I'm going to read a text to you from the Older Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the story of King David. In this text, you're going to hear God making promises to David. Listen for the promises. Listen for the character of God. Listen for this refrain, I will, I will, I will. 2 Samuel chapter 7, these are God's words. We'll see today they are eternally true. Now when the king, that is David, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king David said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But... That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges? Of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And the answer is no, you haven't said that. Verse 8 Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the vision, this vision, Nathan spoke to David. All right, so we've got two distinct ideas to work on together, and then we're going to, boom, when we've done that work, we'll bring those two ideas together brilliantly. They dovetail with one another. So the first one is this, uh, that God is a promise-making God. Now, the biblical way of saying this is to say that our God is a covenantal God, that he binds himself to his people covenantally, that God makes covenants with his people. If we were honest, we would all probably say that that word covenant is one of those Bible words that scares us a little bit, uh, and it scares us because we just don't use it that often in everyday life in Boston in 2010. It's a fuzzy word to us. So when I say the word covenant, you might think, covenant, don't lawyers use that word when they're using all these other big words that I don't understand? Covenant. Didn't George Washington say that word, or was it Benjamin Franklin in the source documents that I was reading in my American history class from the 1700s? Covenant. Covenant. Isn't that a word that shows up around weddings? But if I said to you, define the word covenant with me, most of us in here would probably miss, come a little bit close, but have a hard time saying, here's exactly what covenant means. And what makes it even more intimidating is that we see this word and this concept over and over and over again in the scriptures, and it just seems complicated in here as well. For example, there is not a single covenant in your Bible, right? There are a bunch of them, and they all come with these strange names when we talk about them. The Adamic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Sinaitic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant. And once you start to study the covenants, you come across all this other stuff like conditionality and unconditionality and immediate fulfillment and typological fulfillment. And the word covenant begins as a noun, but then it morphs into an adjective, and you have covenant stipulations and covenant promises and covenant blessings and covenant curses and covenant signs and covenant meals. And by the end of all of this, you are like, you know what? Just keep this word covenant far away from me. I don't get it. It's too, it's too complicated. It's too hard to figure out. I'm not going to understand Okay, I want us, I need us to avoid that reaction because to do that would be to try doing something like reading the eye chart from the bottom to the top. Is everybody in here familiar with what I mean when I say the eye chart? You go to the doctor's office and there's this chart up on a cabinet or a wall and you need to stand back and read the letters on this sign 
to show how good your eyeballs actually work. What's right at the top of that chart, right in the center? It's a big letter E. Okay, there's a big E in there. Good. And what's down at the very bottom of this eye chart? There's this whole row of letters that you have to squint at. You don't know. Is it E-S-T-J-L? Is that Arabic, hieroglyphics, parentheses? I can't see the bottom of this chart. Don't make me read that part. That's an eye chart. Where do you start reading when you're put before an eye chart? You start with the big E, right? If you started at the bottom, you might quit right away thinking, I can't see anything. I need glasses that are about this thick right here. And if you started at the bottom of the eye chart, you would miss some of the things that are perfectly obvious and you could get right away. And so instead you start with the big E and you work your way down. Okay. It's the same thing with this word covenant. Here's the big E or the big C. The big C with covenant, when you hear the word covenant in your Bible, in this church, and you will hear it here in our liturgy, your soul, first and foremost, is not supposed to be confused. It's supposed to leap with joy inside of you. And here's why. Because with covenant, what you have is God, on his own accord, in his free grace, binding himself to his people, by his word. That's covenant. We have the God of all eternity who is all-powerful, can do all things. He comes to his people willingly, and he says, I embrace you, and I promise that I will do certain things for you. That's covenant. Our man John Piper says it like this. When God makes a covenant, he is outlining for you his job description and grabbing a pen and signing off on it. This is how I intend to. This is how I promise to work for you, be for you, and bless you. I promise I will. God is like that. This is good news. God is a promise-making, covenant-initiating God. Okay, the text that I read is one example of that. The fancy name for it is the Davidic Covenant. But basically what it is, is God binding himself by his word to David and making some glorious promises. I'll give one paragraph of background. David, as you know, was the king of Israel, of God's older covenant people. He was not a perfect or a sinless king, but he was a really good king king. That's because his heart was in the right place. His heart was after God. By the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel, the one that I read to you, David had defeated all of God's enemies in battle. He had brought a measure of peacefulness to the land. He had made this city of Jerusalem to be the religious and the political center of the nation's life. And he had brought this Ark of the Covenant which housed the presence of God among his people into this city with him. And David headed to sleep one night inside of his very warm cedar palace. And he couldn't sleep because he realized, time out, wait a minute, something's wrong. I've got this great house and this warm bed 
and this pillow pet. We have four pillow pets now in our house, thanks to Cubo. But the Ark of the Covenant is sitting outside in a tent. And Nathan goes, David goes to Nathan the prophet and he says, Nathan, this isn't right. I need to build the Lord a house. I need to build the Lord a house. And that's the plan in the text until the Lord who loves to make covenant, the promise-making God that we're talking about today, speaks to Nathan, his prophet. And he says, Nathan, you need to go tell David that he's got it backwards. He's not going to build a house for me. I am going to build a house for him. He wants to build a house, a cedar dwelling for my presence, but I am going to build a house or a legacy for him. I was the one who called David into kingship over my people, and I'm going to make a promise that one from his lineage, from his line, his last name, a son of David, is going to rule my chosen people forever. All right, I promise. Now, this text does what a lot of these promise covenantal texts in your Bible does. It telescopes events that are both near and far away, and it jams them into one word from the Lord. The point in the text is this. God makes promises. He is like that. And you guys heard all the I wills that I read to you. I will make for you a great name. I will appoint a place for my people. I will give you rest from your enemies. I will make you a house. I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom. I will be to him a father. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. What's the big E in this text? It is in the character of God to make promises. Okay. Now, just like with Johnny from Revere, my buddy, that wouldn't mean so much on its own, anything that I said in these first 10 minutes, unless it is also in the character of God to keep his promises. And that would change everything. And the scriptures gloriously declare to us, gloriously, that it is not only in his character to keep his promises, but that he is infinitely perfect at it. That God is perfectly faithful. Okay, now there is no one ancient word that we could go to in Hebrew that consistently and perfectly corresponds to the word that we use for faithfulness. Hebrew meaning, just like English meaning, depends a ton on its context. But there is a word that is used to describe God over and over and over again in the Bible that we translate as faithfulness. And it is the word emet, or that's what the word would sound like, emet. And it means firmness or truthfulness or reliableness or stability, continuance. When someone is described as being emet, it means that you can definitely count on them to do what they have said. They will not bail out 
forget, take it back, change their mind, second guess, have an excuse. No, this person is a met or this person is faithful. And what's also very cool is that the context that this word amet shows up when we translate it faithfulness all the time is in tandem with this other Hebrew word chesed. And that word means steadfast love. And it is always used in the context of God extending love and covenant to his people. So we've got faithfulness and steadfast love or Amet and said, always coming at us together, always coming at us together. Why is that? It's because these two ideas or these two descriptors of the character of God are two sides of the same coin. God's love for his covenant people is steadfast, immovable, unchanging, and his faithfulness toward his covenant people is the same. I had Brent open our service today with Psalm 89, and the first thing that Brent read to us today was these words, I will sing of the steadfast love, you hear that, has said, of the Lord forever, with my mouth I will make known his faithfulness, amet, to all generations. Okay, tell me that you can hear it in there, Hebrew poetry, parallelism, steadfast covenant love and faithfulness to his covenantal promises. This is why we've spent so much time on covenant today. The moral perfection of God's faithfulness is not just floating out there somewhere, unattached to anything in particular, like God said he'd pick you up at two o'clock, he'll be there by two. No, it is tied to his covenant-making nature. When God says it, when God promises it, God does it. He is faithful. Later on in Psalm 89, God says this, I will not violate my covenant. I will not alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn to my, by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Can you hear it in there? I am the Lord. I am holy. And so my word is true. I do not break covenant ever. I will not break my covenant with David. I am infinitely and always perfectly faithful. You can count on my words to be made true. God is faithful. Now you would imagine that any text in our whole Bible where these two ideas show up together, said and Amet, steadfast covenantal love and faithfulness, would be places where God has made promises and is in the process of fulfilling them. And so they would always sound the way that Brent sounded to start the service. Joy, song, I'm going to make it known. I'm declaring the steadfast love and the perfect faithfulness of God. But what's very interesting is that the reason that those words of the Lord end up in Psalm 89 is because the faithfulness of God seems to be in doubt 
in this psalm. Something seems to have gone very wrong with the promise-keeping side of God in this text. There is no son of David on the throne of Israel. Some of the promises that we read together from 2 Samuel had come true in the short term. David's name was made great, definitely. His son Solomon did ascend to the throne from his line. Under Solomon, the people of God possessed the promised land to the broadest geographic perimeter that they would. Solomon did build a house for the Lord, just like God had promised he would. But in Psalm 89, the psalmist is really struggling with the long-term keeping of God's promises. He's got this promise ringing in his ears. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. That's what he's got in his ears from 2 Samuel. But with his eyes, he looks around and Israel is a complete mess And there is no king on any throne, and the whole place is in disarray. And so down in verse 49, toward the end of this psalm, he says these words. Listen to the context, but you hear the same words again. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Can you guys feel that? When this psalm began, he was declaring said and Amet, singing about it. But now he's questioning it. He can't see it. Where is your steadfast love? What happened to you being infinitely perfect in faithfulness? What's going on? We know you make covenant. We thought you keep covenant. We know that you promised David that his son would have a forever kind of throne. What happened? What happened? Well, what happened was not that God failed to be faithful. What happened was that David's sons, beginning with Solomon toward the end of his reign, did not keep covenant with God. And so, like God said he would do in our text, God disciplined him and disciplined them. And he removed from them the throne. But what God did not do, what God would not do was to remove himself from his word. And so what does God do to make sure that his covenant promises to David remain steadfast? He comes himself to meet the conditions of the covenant with David. God takes on flesh to see to it that his promises are kept I promised that a son of David would reign in righteousness and justice over my people forever. I am infinitely perfect in my amet, my truthfulness and my faithfulness. I'm going to come see that promise through. We could go to any of the Christmas narratives to see this so beautifully and so clearly. Just think of Matthew's gospel with me. This is the one that Brent read to us. Joseph is engaged to Mary. He's going to take her as his wife. And then he finds out that she's already pregnant. This is terrible news for everybody involved. 
being a really righteous man. Joseph does not want to hurt Mary any more than she's going to already be hurt from carrying this baby. And so he decides to put her away quietly. But then God in his grace sends an angel, a messenger to Joseph. And the angel's very first words should just send a chill down your spine after everything that we have read so far, that I've said so far today. How does this angel come and greet Joseph? What does he say? He says, Joseph, son of David. No Jewish person would have missed what that title means. Matthew is making pains throughout his gospel and in these first few texts that he gives us to grab us by the shoulders and shake us and say to us what? Hey, this is David's son born in David's city, David's line, David's house, David's throne is about to be occupied again. The time has finally come when the God who is infinitely perfect in his faithfulness is going to make good on the promise that he made to David. So the answer to Psalm 87, when it gets to the shoulder shrugged and the question, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Lord, what happened to your faithfulness to David? The answer is inside Mary's womb at Christmas. A king, the king, is going to be born. It's no wonder that the very next thing that we read about in Matthew's gospel is wise men and Herod and gifts and kingship. This was no peasant child born to a peasant couple. This was a son of David, the son of David, born in Bethlehem, David's city, born to, as the angel said it to Mary, to be great, to be called the son of the Most High, to have given to him the throne of his father, David, from which he would reign over the house of Jacob or Israel forever, and of whose kingdom there would be no end. So Seven Mile Road Christmas is many things. We could preach on it all day. But one of those many things is this that I want you to see today, take with you this week. Christmas is the Son of God taking on flesh, living perfectly, dying brutally, but rising from the dead and ascending to heaven where he is now what? He is the King of all kings seated at the right hand of his father's throne, ruling and reigning now as he will forever. The son of David, kingdom without end. Christmas is about Jesus coming to put the father's faithfulness on full display for every single one of us to see with open mouths and leaping hearts. Our God is in all things perfect, and that includes in faithfulness. He makes promises, and he keeps those promises without fail. Let's receive that grace together today. Let's pray. 
Father, we stand on a rock. You are declared to be a rock in the scriptures, one who is infinitely perfect in his faithfulness. Father, we confess that we, we are promise makers ourselves. Some of us can't end a conversation without saying what we're going to do. But we do not keep our promises. And then we turn our eyes to you and we realize, whoa, you are a personal God who binds himself to us by his word. And you are also a faithful God who always, always, always sees to it that those promises are kept. We in this room today joyfully bend our knee and confess Christ as Lord and King. No one else. The Son of David who sits on your throne reigning now. And one day we will see with our own eyes and worship Him. And when we do, one of the many refrains of our prayers will be forever faithful. Faithful. Faithful is the Lord of hosts, the one who makes and keeps his promises perfectly. Thanks for your grace. Amen. We come to the covenant.